I'm feeling pretty excited here, Jordan. I don't know about you. Why is, why, why is that, Rob? Because in this episode of the Insurgents Podcast, we had an official <laughs> endorsement of the United States congressman who didn't say this in so many words, but my takeaway was that more people need to. It's essential that more people <laughs> become paid interns of the Insurgents Podcast. I thought that was fantastic. That's, I was I, I was not expecting right. that. I think that's right. Yeah. The yeah. role of independent media, which I'm sure he name checked other publications yeah. with whom we are friends. But I think the most important takeaway is listening yeah. to and subscribing to this show. That's what he so. ultimately meant. Yeah, that's what he was talking about. <laughs> I think we can we can get into the semantics of what was said and which which publications and podcasts were promoted, but that was my takeaway, and I'm very excited. And I, I welcome the endorsement, frankly. So that that was welcome. And but you know what was also great? We of all the questions we asked, I think the most important one we asked of a sitting member of Congress was whether or not he was a gamer. Yeah, We're I, really I thought about that all day. <laughs> I thought about that all day in the run up to this this conversation. I was thinking, should I do that? Should I skip it for this episode? <laughs> And then as soon as I hit record, I was just thinking, you know what, fuck it, I'm doing it. Yeah. And I was glad you did. And and another enthusiastic we know. yes as well. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't you know, aware that he was so into who... Fortnite and that he grinds Fortnite battle passes. I had no idea that he was into <laughs> that kind of stuff, but it's cool. It's, it's cool to know yeah. that we have something in common, you know? I I, I had no idea that he was a Zelda speedrunner. You learn something new about <laughs> you learn something new about people every day. Just thinking about like Rogue Kana and his like gaming basement, like munching Cheetos, just like we needed to vote on a bill. And he's like, not now. <laughs> no, Busy. no, there's only five there's five teams left. <laughs> <laughs> I'm holding down Brutal Bastion. I c I can't right now. <laughs> Cheese dust. I just lowers, got the vault key card. Yeah. Lowers fingers. Uh, oh boy. Yeah. We need to you know what we need to do? What's At that? some point, we need to we need to find somebody in that world. Maybe if they're a sitting member, cool. If not, we need somebody who's just like totally not the standard guest for this show, and we need to actually play with them. And I've played yeah. Magic with Lucas Koontz, but I don't think that counts. We need to get one of them on Fortnite. <laughs> that would be cool. That would be the, cool. For the progressive movement, it would help the progressive movement. Exactly. <laughs> Well, the next time you do a fundraiser, you gotta you just gotta dream big. You know, the next time you're trying to really do a Fortnite thing to raise awareness of something or to raise funds, you just gotta reach out to people. Yeah. You'll probably get a few a few bites. Yeah. My money's on of anybody. My money's on Maxwell Frost having played before. I think that yeah. is the safest bet. Yeah. We should get Putin and Zelensky on there. Maybe that's so you can That'll, hash things out. Yeah. Squat them up. Once you start building those team building skills, exactly, they'll settle their differences. I like it. I love it. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, but on a serious note, we do have a we do have a sitting member of Congress on the show today. We have Congressman Ro Khanna. I think of it as staffers like listening to that intro, just being like, "Oh God, what did we just? What did we get like, involved oh, what with the, here? What the fuck did we do? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> this isn't the lever. What the? Yeah. <laughs> no, we we talked about uh, the East Palestine train derailment, Congressman Kana and Congressman Deluzio's train safety bill. We talked about Silicon Valley Bank and the response from the government, and you know, 
Silicon Valley Bank executives bank giving themselves, uh, you know, high salaries and bonuses and selling their stock right before the bank collapsed and what he and others in Congress are trying to do to rectify that situation. We talked about the David Sachs fundraiser that drew a lot of criticism over the past week or so. And also Congressman Khanna's foreign policy stance and his push for diplomacy uh, between Ukraine and Russia that we have we argued when it happened and have long maintained that is a very tepid, moderate, common sense stance that any progressive in Congress should take. And he and others who signed that letter were criticized for it. So we got into all of that and we appreciate his candor even on topics where we didn't uh, feel aligned. He, he gave us, I think, decent answers. I enjoyed this conversation. What about you, Rob? Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Um, I mean, anyone that that knows me knows I've probably become a little bit cynical about like these progressive Congress people uh, and the possibility of like enacting progressive policy in the United States government, which seems very much like almost designed to ensure that such policies never come to pass. But yeah, I give him credit for coming on and talking to us. Um, and we had we were able to have a discussion about these things that we don't totally agree on everything, but uh, was happy to talk to him. Definitely happy to get his perspective uh, on these things. And yeah, I was happy that he took the time to, to speak to the two of us. Right. I mean, on matters of foreign policy, he's definitely uh, one of the better members of Congress. And that's something I've always appreciated. He's been out front on uh, the war in Yemen um, for years when a lot of folks wouldn't touch it. So it was it yep. was good to to hear him despite also he, he had to run to a meeting and he was walking through the Capitol. So we might, we had a little bit of a ch- some choppy audio here and there during that part of the conversation, but his answers I thought were, were, were pretty good and encouraging. It was an Aaron Sorkin style walk and talk. We got it. We got it all <laughs> on audio. But like you're saying though, like the system that these people operate within is crushing and it's, you know, it, it feels designed to crush progressive ideas or progress in general. You know, you, whatever you think about different progressive members of Congress, I think even the most well-meaning, well-intentioned person is going to face serious obstacles there. You can't really knock them for trying. But I also think that we're, we're not we're not a show that tries to make the brand just knocking those people who are trying. Yeah. You know, I don't. I think that's you know, not worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's like credit to him for talking to us and answering these questions, like even getting into the stuff about the the Sachs fundraiser and stuff and kind of asking how he can maintain this sort of stance promoting these progressive economic policies while simultaneously kind of having foot in that world. I think that's something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And, you know, credit to Congressman Kana, he was able to answer the question and we were able to have a, a fruitful, I think, discussion about it. So I think people are going to enjoy it. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Yeah, it was great. Let's get into it. Let's do that. Yeah. Uh, Congressman Ro Khanna will be joining the Insurgents podcast right after this. And now we're joined by Congressman Ro Khanna. Congressman, we're really grateful you, you, you're you joining us today. Uh, how's your day going? It's going well. Appreciate you having me on. Of course, of course. So, admittedly, this might be a bit silly, but we have to ask you because we've asked all of our guests the same question. Just to understand who we're dealing with, what goes on inside their minds, how they spend their free time. We've asked almost every single guest that's ever, ever come on this show, and now it's your turn. 
Congressman Rokana, are you a gamer? Am I? I didn't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> are you a gamer? A a gamer. gamer. Ga- Do you play video games? Yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> no. Have you? Okay. No, I mean, I used to play a gamer, you're saying. Yes. Uh, yes. I, I'm having trouble hearing you, I guess, in terms of the sound. Uh, but, uh, I, I mean, I grew up playing uh, Nintendo and, uh, you know, the, I've, I've certainly right. played Xbox and, you know, but it, I, I don't think I've, I've played since uh, junior high. It's I'm counts. hearing that you are a gamer. Yeah, that's my that's my yeah. no, no, I mean, Confirmed. Man football and Mario Brothers and uh, yeah. a lot of the FIFA sports games uh, growing up. Heck yeah, that's that's great to hear. That counts. But when I grew up, grew up to date me, it was the Atari box and Nintendo. So. <laughs> uh, I yeah, I do think that still counts. Once a gamer, always a gamer. Yep. Uh, but on a serious note, Congressman, you're here to to talk about the response, including your safety bill, to the East Palestine train derailment. Now, uh, as, as folks have listened to this and I've, I've talked elsewhere, that's that's an area where I grew up. So this is an area that hits close to home for me. Uh, so I was encouraged to see you and others in, in, in Washington have a swift response to demand accountability to prevent future disasters like this. So you have a bill with uh, Representative Chris Deluzio calling for increased uh, or heightened classification for high-hazard flammable trains. Could you tell listeners what you're calling for and why they should care about this? Well, first of all, what happened in East Palestine was totally preventable. I mean, uh, to have the Department of Transportation say cavalierly, well, there are a thousand train derailments every year, and that's just how it goes. I mean, my first instinct would be, well, how do we fix that? And one of the ways you fix that is to adopt the recommendations of the National Transportation Safety Board under Obama. And those recommendations were, uh, first of all, the classification of highly flammable uh, materials as a, uh, a a risk that triggers the highest safety. That uh, wasn't the case here. Some of the materials that were carrying, even though they were high, highly flammable, uh, were not categorized as a risk, and so they didn't have to have the highest safety. It means making sure that the train size is limited when they're carrying these dangerous materials. We know long trains are more at risk of derailment. I mean, it's kind of common sense. It means having more people in the crew to prevent these kind of accidents. I mean, you, you probably uh, could have folks in high school or college come up with a common sense safety recommendations that you have shorter trains, more people on the trains, and uh, have more protections when you have highly flammable material. And that's exactly what the National Transportation Safety Board did under Obama. That's exactly what Deluzio and my bill does. By the way, uh, the National Transportation and Safety Board's recommendations were based on the Railroad Association's own report. So what we're talking about is universally accepted by the experts. There's been a lot of sort of like a lot of conservatives and Republicans have you know jumped on board this disaster to try and use that to kind of criticize the Biden administration. Obviously, they're the ones that are in charge while this stuff is going on. Um, and they've kind of use this as a way to sort of attack Democrats and attack Biden. Do you think there's any actual appetite among conservatives and Republicans to really meaningfully in good faith actually deal with these issues? And 
you know, engage with the Democrats to try and pass legislation that can prevent this stuff from happening in the future? Or is this more just like sort of hot air, just a way for them to attack the administration without actually offering much uh, in the way of solutions? Well, fortunately, so far they have not, in the House at least, come and supported the Luzio my bill. Almost all of the folks are uh, are, are uh, Democrats. And in the Senate, you know, you have J.D. Vance and Chair Brown putting something forward that's constructive. It's not as far as Deluzio and I would go, uh, but it is constructive. And I, candidly, I was huge for Tim Ryan, but I give J.D. Mann's credit for at least working to put something forward. Look, the critique has an element of truth to it, which is that towns like East Palestine uh, do not get the attention they deserve. They have been shafted by globalization. Too many of those jobs went to China to Mexico under the NAFTA and the uh, ascension of the World Trade Organization, of China's ascension into the World Trade Organization. We haven't paid enough attention to the working class. We should have had people showing up, uh, high-level folks uh, from the Department of Transportation a few days after the crisis there uh, to, to make sure that they were uh, empathizing with people's pain. But all of that is, I think, fair criticism. But then the question is, okay, what are you going to do about it? And to be sincere about it, that you would hope they would join Deluzio and my my bill. Now this this is a circumstance that I think perfectly illustrates the role of money in politics. This is you know uh, the Republican Party is filled with people who take money from the American Association of Railroads as long as well as these railroad industry uh, corporate PACs. This is something you've railed against in the past. Are there conversations that you have with your colleagues from across the aisle where this ever comes up? Do you do you ever have an opportunity where when they are going out there saying that, you know, Washington uh, or political elites or the Biden administration doesn't care about this city because they don't care about white people? Uh, does 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 the role of money in politics and why they're trying to deflect from this corporate malfeasance ever come up? It does. I mean, but it unfortunately, comes up on the Democratic side. Well, one of the big issues is not just money in politics, which is obviously the case that the railroad associations spend money to have deregulation, that these special interests uh, block uh, common sense uh, regulation. But we have to be honest about what led to the offshoring of jobs in this country. And it was corporate greed. It was a deal to get cheap labor and low regulations. That's why we hollowed out towns like East Palestine. And so the critique is beyond, okay, you're taking special interest money you're taking money from PACs. I don't take any PAC money, or and I've been against big money in politics. The critique is beyond Citizens United, though that's important. The critique is that this country, under neoliberalism, for 40, 50 years, has been worshiping at the altar of shareholder maximization at the expense of everything else. And we have been shipping jobs offshore to the cheapest labor uh, places. We have been shipping jobs to places with no regulations. We've been worshiping at the altar of simply consumer prices going down, and that has hurt working families and communities like East Palestine. And that, until there is an acknowledgement of that, you're not really going to have a solution to grievances that I view as very legitimate. So you think because like considering the role that the Democratic Party has played and kind of like being part of that process... Um, how do you think Democrats and liberals should be trying to get working people back on their side? Because I think a lot of these communities do understand that the Democratic Party were deeply implicated in this kind of neoliberalization and this process of offshoring all of these jobs. 
what do you think Democrats need to do in order to convince these communities that they've kind of moved past this this uh, obsession with uh, neoliberalism and this kind of globalization uh, process? We need to say that we made a mistake. This country made a mistake. Both parties made a mistake. Not to argue about who made what mistake. The point is, for 40 years, we decided that production in America didn't matter, that we could just ship off manufacturing. And what was the result? We didn't make masks in America. We don't make enough steel in America. We make 4%. We used to make 20%. We don't make aluminum anymore. We don't make paper anymore. We shipped industry after industry offshore. We didn't even make, we don't even make enough baby formula in this country. We don't make Tylenol in this country. That was, that was absurd policy and it was motivated by corporate greed. And so we've got to say now we get that that policy was wrong. We're going to make America a manufacturing superpower again. We're going to make America a producing nation again. We're going to invest in the communities that have been hollowed out because of a globalization that ran amok. We don't begrudge the rise of people coming out of poverty in China or India or other parts of the, uh, the world, but it shouldn't have come at the expense of the working class in communities that were devastated by it because of multinational corporations and greed. And so we're going to rebuild these communities the way Hamilton did, the way FDR did, with a national development strategy of having the government work with the private sector and labor and education to rebuild America, that we need that national development. It's not going to happen just by giving tax cuts. So I think we accept the critique that these communities have and frustration that they have, but then we offer a more real solution in terms of how we get uh, a, a re revitalization. I think so often with scenarios like this, we'll see a wave of attention, an outpouring of support, and then people just forget about it. The next thing happens, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, which was bad, provided one distraction, uh, while there are many others. Now people's attention are turning to a looming Trump indictment. What are you doing to keep people focused on uh, preventing future disasters like uh, the one we saw in East Palestine? And what is the current status of this uh, Kana Deluzio bill? And do you have, I guess, do you also have high hopes that it'll make it through a Republican House? Well, I'm going on podcasts like yours. I'm going on independent media. I mean, independent media is covering it. I give the lever extraordinary credit. This would not have been a national story if it weren't for the lever's early reporting. We need more support for independent media, which isn't going to cover the Trump indictment 24-7. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that you shouldn't cover it, but you really need every every hour, every minute on that and not on any other issue. So we've got to support uh, all of the, the, the independent voices and independent media in our country. But I'm uh, Chris Deluzio is working so hard on this. He, he represents an area that's been affected in Pennsylvania. We, we've gotten already almost 30 co-sponsors, which is a lot since the introduction. We're going to continue to work it. Our bill isn't going to pass in its current form, but I hope it can form the basis of a bill that can pass. I don't want this to be partisan. I'm willing to compromise with Republicans. I would support a version of J.D. Vance's bill, even though I think it needs to be stronger to get something done. What is unacceptable is to have nothing done. And so I don't, I'm not looking to score political points here. I'm looking to get something done. And uh, we're going to keep working on it uh, throughout this Congress. So, uh, Congressman, over the weekend, we saw uh, a story from the Associated Press that claimed that there were pro-Moscow voices that were trying to steer the conversation around the East Palestine train derailment. And in, in the tweet promoting the Associated Press article, they said, 
The accounts posted misleading claims and anti-U.S. propaganda designed to spread fear about the toxic spill and mock the U.S. response. And now surely their disinformation uh, and foreign influence uh, experts weighed in saying this always happens. There's always going to be some element of that. But that doesn't mean that that was one largely the driver of these conversations or and it certainly doesn't negate the real circumstances that people in and around East Palestine experienced. So I'm wondering what you make of that. You're somebody who, this has been a hot topic in, in Washington for a few years now. And I, I'm curious, as somebody who's out there fighting for people in East Palestine and communities like it, what you think of when you see, what you think when you see articles like that, that many felt tried to dismiss the criticism of the Biden administration or the government response to the situation? Well, it's patronizing. It's patronizing to the people there. I mean, Americans are really smart. You know, whether they have a college degree or a fancy law degree like me or whether they grew up, you know what they understand? They understand their own interests. They understand their own values. And I think it is patronizing to think that American people are somehow being just manipulated by uh, of foreign actors. I, I don't believe that the, the case. It doesn't mean that we don't take it seriously when there is foreign interference and, uh, and, and propaganda and that we should try to address it and, uh, and, re- and retaliate against countries trying to do that. But I have more faith in the American public. And I think when people are voicing their concerns, it's because those concerns are legitimate. I mean, if I was living in East Palestine, I'd be concerned. Uh, I'd be concerned about drinking the water there and, and want to know that it was really safe. And I'd be concerned about the derailment. And I think that there, that we have to acknowledge that those fears were legitimate and not to try to downplay them by pointing to some disinformation. I mean, go after the disinformation. But th- this is, I think, a problem with the Democratic uh, messaging. We go on and we say, well, you know, uh, people are just being manipulated by the propaganda uh, on X, Y, Z. Give me a break. I mean, that's like if Apple computers, if Apple didn't sell their iPhone and the executive vice president came into the board meeting and saying, you know what, this phone is really great. People are just too dumb to appreciate it. They're being manipulated into buying the Samsung phone. I mean, who does that? Or, or Pepsi and Coke. You know, the, our latest version of Coke tastes really great. But you know what? Pepsi is manipulating everyone to think Pepsi tastes great. No, you, you, it's the, uh, the, the challenge is for you to earn the American people's trust. They're in charge. They're the boss. They're the smart ones, not the politicians. I really think that fundamental mischaracterization, this, under, this thinking that somehow the politicians are smarter than the people, is what gets the Democrats in trouble. The people are smarter, and I'll tell you why. Because we've got 250 years of history of the people that have helped develop this country. And a politician's one individual. You have to have some respect for the collective wisdom and experience of people. Yeah. I mean, I, I see some of the discourse that takes place down there in Washington. So I would, I would agree with that assessment. Absolutely. <laughs> On that front, Congressman, I just wanted to get into uh, talking about the kind of chaos that's been going on in the banking system, specifically the, the collapse of Silicon Valley bank. You're someone that obviously has deep ties to Silicon Valley and, um, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of this sense of that people want to be calm about this and not panic or think that there's anything wrong fundamentally with the, the banking system in the United States or with Silicon Valley in general. But what's your read on this situation? Is it an isolated incident or is it evidence of some more uh, chaos that could be on the way or a, a domino that's falling in terms of this, uh, the U.S. financial system? Well, look, Silicon Valley Bank was uniquely mismanaged. And... Uh, 
there need to be consequences of that. I mean, I've called for the executives to have their stock sale uh, gains clawed back, their bonuses clawed back. The idea that they had these large deposits and had no diversity in their accounts was a big mistake. The idea that they had no hedge against long-term bonds uh, and were just greedy in terms of going for the higher interest rates was a mistake. The idea that they were giving their customers massive incentives to keep their money in the bank unprotected at times. I mean, Roku having uh, hundreds of millions of dollars unprotected. How does that happen? And why aren't they in a sweep account or a mutual money market account? That was a mistake. So I'm not going to excuse in any way what Silicon Valley Bank did. The problem is because of that crisis, because of the rapid rise of interest rates, this has put pressure on all regional banks and we need regional banks. And that's why I called for the protection of the depositors. One, because some of the depositors, the 50,000 companies, those were being used to make payroll. Those were so people could pay, make rent. Those were it's the Sunnyvale Community Service Center, which is a food bank in my district. So you could, you could say, well, who cares? They all got, some of these people got VC money. But you don't want the working class and the actual employees to get hurt and the small businesses to get hurt just because the VCs uh, may have put money in it or the bank was irresponsible. Uh, the, and what well, the bigger issue is we don't want to run on regional banks where we just have four banks in this country, J.P. Morgan, Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America. So uh, I think that hold these bank executives accountable, uh, investigate them, uh, but make sure we're protecting regional banks. Do you think like what you're describing is is kind of and symptomatic of a larger problem where working people and average people are kind of held hostage in a way by these like these extremely powerful and uh, financial interests that are not taking proper precautions and whenever one of these kinds of uh, incidents happens that's always the the thing that gets held up which is that well, of course we need to make these institutions whole again to protect all these working people. And a lot of that is true, but isn't that a bit of a problem, the way that these very powerful interests seem to kind of skate away from responsibility often because they also control the fates of more a lot more working people and average people? Yes, it is. I mean, I do want to contrast this from 2008. Uh, I'm not going to debate whether it's a bailout or not. Different people have a different view on whether they call having the bank uh, pay a premium uh, uh, and, and be guaranteed deposits a bailout or not. But I will say this, it's very different than 2008, where what we did was basically give money to the bank executives and said to the banks, uh, you know, you go and succeed. And we didn't give any assistance really for the mortgages that people had. And so we let their homes go under. Here, at least the assistance is going to the people who are the depositors, the small businesses with payrolls. But you're right. I mean, uh, it shouldn't come down to the fact that you're having to go to the taxpayer to say, uh, guarantee these deposits over 250000 or we're not going to make payroll for the financial irresponsibility of Silicon Valley Bank management. Not just the financial irresponsibility for decisions that were trying to maximize profits out of greed. Uh, you know, they could have taken 2% interest uh, on short-term bonds. They went for the 4% interest on long-term bonds, and they, that's what they got caught. They went for large accounts as opposed to a lot of smaller accounts because they wanted to make a lot of money. So what is the solution? Two things. One, we need stronger regulation. Dodd-Frank should apply to these banks, of regional banks. I voted against the lobbying in my own district. Silicon Valley Bank was telling me in my office, saying, vote for deregulation. You're going to kill the innovation economy. You're going to hurt your own district. 
And I voted no. I said, no, we're going to keep Dodd-Frank to apply. Too many people voted, including Democrats, voted for the deregulation. That was a big mistake. So we need strong regulation. And then we need mandatory insurance. You know, when you go on, on the road and you're driving a car, it's illegal for you not to have insurance because you hit someone. Uh, we don't say that the government should pay for that. We say you should be liable for that. Here, what we have is a bunch of people on the road driving without insurance. You got these large accounts that are going uninsured. So have mandatory insurance for them. If they're in a large account, you got to pay a fee that comes to the deposit insurance fund to protect it. And that, I think, is a fair solution. You know, this bank, banks like Silicon Valley Bank lobbied against uh, higher uh, FDIC payments. And on top of, like you said, the, the heightened scrutiny for banks of their size in 2018, you know, what? one thing that you pointed out earlier, I think, illustrates how much worse this could have been, not just economically, but socially. And I think back to where I was in 2008. I was in Youngstown and saw a bunch of my friends and family lose their homes. And then we all saw bank executives, you know, get like you're saying, they all got bailed out. None of them faced any punishment and a lot of them got bonuses. That was a really radicalizing moment for, for people uh, in our community and communities like Youngstown. And unfortunately that was exploited by the right. And that, you know, that animus toward the, that, that system created a, the foundation for the tea party. What, I mean, what are conversations like among your colleagues about taking on special interests and and pushing back against you know calls or calls against increasing any sort of FDIC increase in payments or um, people fighting to protect uh, Jay Powell's job if there are any who are vocally supporting uh, Jerome Powell. I mean, it seems like the pieces that are in place now there are enough people in power with their hands on the lever near or on the levers of power who want to keep things just as they are because here it doesn't really seem like many people faced consequences yet. We'll see, I'm sure we'll see hearings and investigations into the executives of Silicon Valley bank, but doesn't seem like there's any guardrails now to, as it stands to prevent against a future situation similar to this. Jordan, I think you're absolutely right. Look, I hope the Silicon Valley bank executives have to disgorge their profits and there's clawback and their consequences, but that sort of will make us feel good in the moment because it's just and right, but it's not really a systematic structural reform. It's not preventing the next Silicon Valley Bank from happening. Uh, we need to have uh, real reform. We need to have the bank premiums go up and a fee on these large deposit account holders uh, to have federal FDIC it, it, caps increase. Because here's the reality. People say, oh, you're, you're protecting these large accounts. A lot of businesses need more than 250000 to make payroll. But even if you think, okay, you're protecting these large accounts, the reality is this. They're protected. The taxpayer is the one who ends up protecting them. I mean, does anyone think if J.P. Morgan or Chase or uh, Citibank crash that the government wouldn't step in and protect those accounts? Of course they're protected. That's why everyone's putting their money in these too-big-to-fail banks. So we're also going to protect, as Secretary Yellen said, these uh, any of these other banks that have deposit issues, we've throughout our history usually protected the depositors. So what we're calling for is a higher bank fee, a higher fee on these wealthy accounts. And there's special interests who don't want to do that. What we're calling for is more regulation on these accounts because they are going to get protection. 
their special interests who don't want to do that. They want all of the upside of the ultimate government protection without the regulatory burdens, without the fees uh, to, to, to take out the insurance for themselves. And that's, I think, what's causing some of the frustration. Um, you recently got criticized a little bit for this fundraiser that you were doing with David Sachs, which obviously after this incident became kind of like a high profile thing. Is that a problem for you at all? Because I know you're someone that has tried to, you know, over your career advocate for these kind of progressive economic policies. Do you think you're able to like firmly and strongly advocate for working people and consumers and against these kind of special interests while also kind of having a foot in that world in the Silicon Valley fundraising world? And how do you kind of square that circle? Well, I think there's a philosophical question that people have to decide. And look, I have been, I advocate, in fact, there was an article today. Uh, I should be promoting articles that may be critical of me, but there was an article today saying kind of defends David Sachs fundraiser. And uh, the, the, the article says, I'm for Medicare for all. I disagree with David. I'm going to talk to him about Medicare for all. I, I'm, I'm proud of co-chairing Bernie Sanders' campaign. I'm for free public college. And I'm for, in fact, I say I'm for higher taxes on people like David Sachs. So I guess the question is, if I'm advocating strongly on voting and publicly, and by the way, at these events for Medicare for all, for saying if you're going to guarantee deposits, you should guarantee health care, for a higher tax on the wealthy, for free vocational education and free public college, for bringing manufacturing jobs back, uh, then isn't it good that we can build a majority coalition? Do we want to be so pure that we never get over 50 percent? Or do we want to look at what FDR did in building a majority coalition for these policies? I believe that I can build a majority coalition. Does that mean uh, it's 100 percent pure? No. Do I think there's anyone with the integrity of Mahatma Gandhi in American politics? No. I think American politics, by and large, is a place where the system is challenging and you have to figure out how do you make progress. I have never compromised on my position. But I have tried to build as broad base uh, around those positions. You know, I, I think there are – I'm not going to, you know, knock your strategy. I think some people might be cynical of the potential outcomes. So if someone says, okay, I hear you, but, you know, why would I ever think that David Sachs is going to fight for Medicare for all? Or why would I think that other people who would attend this fundraiser are going to join us in this fight? Because – there's a risk, you know, not, not not even the risk, like the part of the problem with a private healthcare system is people become dependent on jobs. And when you have people in that industry, just like any other industry, use that as a benefit to keep workers there longer, um, to prevent against uh, people, you know, job hopping, they might be a little bit more cynical on this strategy. So I mean, I guess why should people be okay with this when you are also simultaneously against corporate PAC money, against big money in politics? How how should people see both of these uh, and reach some point of acceptance? Well, I think it's a fair question. And I guess if I was having a fundraiser with uh, individuals in the private health insurance industry, you may wonder, okay, how are they going to get around with Medicare for All? I actually think Medicare for All is pro-business, pro-small business. I think if you're a tech entrepreneur, if you're running a company like PayPal or, uh, or, or like Microsoft or like Google, the last thing you want is to be paying these extraordinary premiums uh, in to private health insurance. It's why we are at a competitive disadvantage to Europe. Uh, so I believe the progressives need to make not just a moral case. Yes, everyone needs health care, but the economic case. 
This is a deadweight loss on the American economy. It's what's leading to the offering of jobs. It's what's leading to us not being as competitive. And many business leaders actually agree with that. They're, they may not come out for it, but it's, it's not something that they're vocally opposed to. It's one of the reasons that I was elected in Silicon Valley at a platform of Medicare for All and free public college, which is just an investment in human, human capital. Now, do I think David Sachs is there? No, but though he's had conversations online where he says he's not opposed to it, I don't think he'd be, uh, he's open to discussing it. And look at where Sachs is, is moved by his own admission on regulation. He said, yeah, now I think there should be some reasonable regulation. So I guess my point is this. The, uh, if I went to, to David Sachs, and I gave a different message, and I said uh, something that was pandering to that audience, then I think it's a legitimate criticism. But if I'm going there and saying the same thing that I'm saying to you, the same thing that I'm saying on MSNBC, the same thing that I'm saying to, to David Sirota, uh, I think that that's reasonable. I mean, I, that the, the important thing is, can you be consistent in your ideals? and build as broad a support base as possible. Now, so people say, well, why is David Sexton supporting Ro Khanna? Because they have so many differences. And one of the reasons is he likes my anti-war stances on Yemen. He likes the fact that I'm opposed to a trillion-dollar defense budget. He likes the fact that I've stood up for the First Amendment. So people, you know, people, and he, he, he appreciates that I'm willing to engage. And I guess the, the point is, and I think the politics about addition we got to build a big coalition. Uh, we need to build a big coalition to win, to get the policies passed. Congressman Khanna, uh, just on that subject, you talk about your anti-war stances. I know you were, a, you were a prominent part of the sort of progressive push to advocate for the Biden administration to engage in a bit more diplomacy in Ukraine, which obviously received a pretty strong and forceful pushback for both from pundits and also from sort of uh, sort of establishment Democrats as well. I was, and to your credit, I saw you continue to advocate for that uh, despite the pushback that you received from that kind of what I thought was a pretty mild stance. Um, lately, China has just now started to try and uh, implicate itself as to kind of broker a sort of peace deal there. I was just wondering if you had taken a look at their plan for peace in Ukraine that they recently released, and what your what your position is on that. Like, what do you think of that? I, all I called for in that letter, which I was one of the only people who didn't revoke it, my, my uh, signature on the letter, was saying that uh, uh, we should have dialogue at the same time with Russia. I said Russia's war was unprovoked. Russia was wrong. I said we need to, to, to stand for Ukrainian territorial sovereignty. But we should, even at the height of the Cold War, we had uh, communication with Russia. And that's all the letter called for. And by the way, one of the reasons that people are attacking David Sachs is because David Sachs said, oh, look, uh, it's fine. that uh, It's good that a progressive is, a, not, is standing by that letter. Now, does that mean that I agree with David Sachs on Ukraine policy? No. We have our differences. Uh, but, but he and others, some of them, people thought that was, a, uh, that was not some outrageous thing that we should be uh, talking to them. Now, China, and my problem with China is they haven't condemned Putin's invasion. And so I think they have very little credibility to then come in and, 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 and broker a peace when, uh, the, when, when Xi Jinping is going and describing Putin as one of his, his best friends, which is why I do think American leadership is important and we should be uh, helping drive uh, uh, 
international leadership, both in standing with Ukraine and also thinking through what a just peace looks like. Uh, well, we don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, we thank you, Congressman, for, for joining us. Uh, greatly appreciate you <laughs> you not withdrawing your name on the uh, <laughs> Ukraine diplomacy letter. Again, uh, to Rob's point, a pretty mild stance that you would think more people would be supportive of, just simply calling for diplomacy. Um, so we, we greatly appreciate that. And thank you for taking the time to, to talk to us. Thank you. I appreciate your uh, reporting and look forward to to being back on sometime. Of course. Have a good night. Take care. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Jordan.